Thank you, Thomas. <clears throat> Very well done. Reminding us of why Jesus came, and we want to discuss that this morning. And so let's bow in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we are so thankful for the fact that you sent your son to die for us. We who were lost from our birth, we who were enemies from our birth, and we thank you for God, the Holy Spirit, that convicted our hearts and brought to us the knowledge that you sent your Son for us and that you called us to faith. We thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ and all he means to us as our Savior, our Lord, the one who upholds all things. And we pray for this service and the testimonies that we will hear even before the morning's over, Lord willing. So may the Spirit of God have his way in this service. May we allow him to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> this morning I want to talk to you about the, uh, and bring to you the reason why it was necessary for Jesus Christ to come in the flesh, for God to come in the flesh. We also know, and I realized last uh, Friday night as I watched a concert in another church and the pastor gave a speech, his little devotion, and he made the comment that the birth of Jesus Christ is only mentioned in one verse in the Bible, which it actually is. It's interesting, however, that the whole New Testament is based on that one verse and alludes to that one verse because it is an important act. It is an act of God that brought man into, uh, that God became flesh for our own eternal salvation. And as we think about it, we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He gave his only begotten son. And that word begotten doesn't mean the first begotten of a family necessarily. It does, but it also means more. He is a unique son of God. He is God and he is man in one person. He's different from God since Bethlehem in that he is man and he's different from man in that he is God and he is hypostatically related together in one person. There is only one means by which God could save man eternally. Why was it necessary, really, the incarnation? Why was it necessary that God become man? Why was that so important that the second person of the Trinity would have to become and join with mankind. The problem between God and man is seen in a couple verses in Scripture. In fact, it laces everything from Genesis to Revelation. But there are a couple Scriptures that really tell us about it. And uh, the one complaint that man had very early is expressed by Job, and his complaint was that God is not like a man. One of the attributes of God is he is infinite. 
So how can an infinite pers person be known by a finite man? If God is incomprehensible and un unable to understand by man, how can we as individuals understand someone who is incomprehensible, who is unknowing? And this is a problem with Id idolatry. Idolatry realizes that one God in their mind cannot cover all the bases, so they have a God for this and a God for that, and they have multitude gods to worship. We have one God, which we know. So to truly know a God who is infinite, being infinite, infinite and we being finite creatures or being humans, the only way God can tell us what he's like is if he either shows us or writes it down. We can't know it any other way. And since God is invisible, how can anyone experience him with a physical sense or intuitively? If God is invisible and we've never seen him, and nobody ever has, how can we see God? How can we know God exists? How can we relate to him? The Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now that the king eternal, immoral, immortal, excuse me, and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. If he's invisible, how can we relate to him? How can we see him? Now here's a complaint of Job in Job chapter 9, verse 32 to 33. The Bible says, it relates what Job says. He said he's not a man that, I'm, that I am, that I may answer him, that we may go together or go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Job said, I got a problem. I'm going through all this misery. I'm going through all this kind of suffering. And how can I relate to a God? How can he relate to me? How can God relate to me? How does he know what it's like by experience to live in a world that he's cursed? If God wants to know him, then God must reveal himself to man by either word or deed, and God has done that. He's done that. In 1 Timothy 2.5 we read, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So how do you know God and what he's like unless he shows himself to us? The answer of man's complaint is seen, turn with me to John chapter 1 and verse 14. John, John, who writes to show us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, starts out his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the world was made by him, and there was not anything made that was made without him. So who is this Word, and why is he called the Word? Well, it's because of revelation. How do you know what another person is thinking unless he tells you? And how is he going to tell you? In words. Words make things clear to you. 
And the ultimate word from God is Jesus Christ, who is the one who reveals what God is like, and he does it through the flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How are we going to know about God? The word who created the world, he became flesh, and we can relate to that. He dwelt among us. We saw his actions. We saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. F.F. Bruce writes, It is because God made man in his own image that he could accurately reveal himself in human life. Think about this. We are made in the image of God. God is more like man than anything else in his creation. We're in his image. And man is more like God than the highest of his creation. You know, evolution says we're from apes. We're from chimpanzees. No, we're not. Chimpanzee is far less than what we are, or an ape. Now, you can teach ape a few things. You can teach ape to sit down and eat with a knife and a fork. And you can tell, tell an ape to bow before he eats, and he's liable to do it. But when you turn him back into the jungle, what does he do? He walks on all fours, climbs a tree, and eats a banana. It's, it's just the nature of the animal. But you and I have been created in God's image. We have moral, we are moral, we are self-conscious, we are irrational because God is moral. God is self-conscious and God is rational. Even though man was created in God's image and it was marred by sin, we are still in God's image, as James tells us. We are still in the image of God. And so God, to answer and to reveal himself, came in human perfect flesh, born of a virgin, to show us what he's like. The second person of the Trinity put on human flesh forever. Think of that, the eternal God became a man like you and me. And that happened at a point of time, and that happened to Bethlehem. The eternal God made flesh clothed in the likeness of men. So it's no longer valid for us to say of God, he's not a man. Because a man sits on the throne of the universe. He is forever a man, and he will be forever a man in the eternal new heavens and new earth. When you go to God in prayer, as a faithful high priest we'll talk about in a later sermon, when you go to God in prayer, you are going to someone who understands human life. He's been where you've been. He's been where I've been. He's been tempted in all points like any one of us. And he's experienced every aspect of life. That's God himself, the creator, who humbled himself to become 
part of his creation, human beings. The application is salvation is the ultimate need of mankind because of the chasm between God and man. And here's our problem. You know it. Turn with me to Romans 10, just to uh, Romans 3, verse 10, just to remind ourselves of our need. Romans 3.10, as it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. No such thing as a righteous person apart from God's salvation. None, period. Drop your eyes down to verse 23. You know that verse very well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us and every child, every teenager who has the ability to understand, understands this, that he sinned. Understands that he has violated God's law, that he sinned against God, and there's a penalty to be paid. Look at chapter 6, verse 23. What is the penalty of our sin anyway? The penalty of our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, the wages of sin are death. Have you sinned? You deserve death. In fact, you deserve an eternal hell. We all do. If pure justice were given out without any mercy or grace, all of us would end up in eternal hell. The experience of sin is the separation or death. Experience of sin is death. The separation of the body from the spirit and from God. When a, people, when a person dies today, they are separated from their soul and spirit. That's the end of their human life down here. But, the eternal, but their spirit is eternal. It goes to heaven and to hell. Now here's the problem. And here's the importance of God's act at Bethlehem. Since God loved the world, for God so loved the world, and the world is to be saved then God has to provide for that penalty that you and I owed, which is death. And it is important to recognize that God then cannot die. He's a pure spirit. He doesn't have a body. So he could not die for us without a human body. So he gave his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, who volunteered to become a man forever. Here is a God who has free range, totally free, totally rich, totally wealth, yet for our sakes, even though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, poor enough to live our lives 
and to die in our place. In Galatians 4, verse through 5, 4, 4 through 5, we read, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, when you think of adoption, you think in one sense of we being transferred into another family, and even though we are reared by, as an adopted son or daughter, we are reared by uh, parents who are not our birthing parents, and we become a part of that family. But the adoption that God is talking about is that we actually are born over into his family and God is our father by virtue of the fact that we've been born into his family and we are his children. In 1 John, we see the importance of this truth and it's a dividing line in the world. 1 John chapter 4 verses 2 to 3. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, there's been two dividing lines when they talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. One is that Christ was not truly a man. He was always divine and uh, emphasis on the divinity of Christ as opposed to the humanity of Christ. And the other rule of thumb, which seems to be more important in the era in which we live, is that Christ is a man with a divine spark, great teacher, great example, but he's totally man and the denials in of the virgin birth. And John says, Hereby you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard okay. that it's coming and now is already in the world. The spirit, the theology that puts the Antichrist into power is already at work. He's at work in the lives of people who do not accept the fact that Jesus is literally from God in the flesh. In essence, they deny the virgin birth. This passage reveals the crucial importance of God. It's act at Bethlehem. The apostle Jesus loved states very clearly every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God is the spirit of the Antichrist. On this point, there can be no talk about mutual compromise, sharing of viewpoints, or trying to find some common ground on this fact. True, Christianity, true Christianity 
stands or falls on the basis of Jesus Christ's virgin birth and his becoming a man and still remaining God. That's a crucial point. And as I said, there can be no compromise on this. There can, there can be no common ground that we can try to find. For God to experience the full reality of death in all its fullness, he had to become flesh. Clothed himself in a body of flesh of blood and bones. God could not die. But God in flesh could die. And he did die for our sin. And only the incarnate God could be the savior of sinners. He was identified. He didn't become our sin. He was identified with our sin in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 says. He was identified. He suffered as though he sinned, though he never did sin. How much uh, sin does it have to, did it take to get Adam and Eve out of the art, a garden and plunge the entire earth into depravity? One sin. Don't eat of this tree. And he was expelled from the Garden of Eden, he and his wife, Eve. And as a result, all the children born to him, with the exception of Jesus Christ, have been born in sin and are enemies of God by birth and uh, are, uh, do not look for him. They are not righteous. God has to take the initiative. God has to take the initiative. We have been a privileged church to see a number of young babies born and still some to come. And uh, when this little baby is born, guess what? They're born with an old sin nature. As cute as they are, and as fun as they are, at my age in someone else's arms, but as cute as they are, and as much as we enjoy them, they're born with a sin nature. And it takes wise parents and godly parents to bring them to a place where they'll be hear the word of God, taught the word of God, nurtured in the word of God along with parental support, and pray that God will bring them to himself in salvation. That's why the youth department is very, very important. That's why the, the young teachers, or the teachers maybe not necessarily young themselves, but teaching from the nursery all the way through are very important. So for God to be, to be our Savior had to die in our place. There's no other way. Matthew 29, 42, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane said, My Father... If this not cannot pass away, unless I drink it, your, your will be done. Is there any other way? For our sake to know, is there any other way to be saved? You know what God said basically to Jesus? No. And he willingly accepted that. 
and said, your will be done. There's no other way. There's no other plan of salvation. In fact, uh, that's the only message that we have. You know, we can't. The man needs salvation. And as we heard this morning from a missionary, it's the gospel that changes lives. It's a message that changes lives. It's not just going and digging wells, and it's not just vaccinations, and it's not just education. The bottom line is all of these acts have to lead to one message that changes them or else they're going to hell. And your neighbor, my neighbors, who do not know Christ, just because we go to church and we live a life, we hope, that impresses them, they too must accept Jesus Christ. And it's not just our life alone. It has to be our testimony. We have to share that. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read the following. Take a look at that in your Bible. God, he says, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and to the prophet in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The second person of the infinite God is the maker of the world and the heir of all things, and he is the one who has been made known to us through his life, through the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 1, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The angels worshipped him. They were made by him. They worship at his feet. And yet when you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, you read this. But we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Somebody died in your place in order to be saved. And that somebody who died in your place was none other than the second person of the Trinity in flesh. Jesus. We all owe our life to him. It's interesting when you stop and think about creation. And we talked about it, I think, a couple weeks ago, uh, Genesis 3.15. When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't kill them physically immediately, did he? Expelled them out of the garden. Because God wanted to save mankind and bring his son through a woman all the way down to Bethlehem. Every person in this room owes your physical life to the fact that God didn't kill Adam and Eve immediately. And even if you deny Jesus Christ and you say, I don't want anything to do with him, or I'm going to put this off, still by the grace of God, you're here. 
He could have been killed. We could all not have been here. Had it not been for the grace of God and his plan of salvation through Bethlehem to the eternal future. It's all grace. But that grace, that death was in our place. The Lord of creation, now in the flesh, was made lower than the angels for a while. Why? So he could taste death for all of us. It's his death as believers that we are there. He paid the penalty of our sin. He bore it in full weight. God did not diminish it because it was his son. He bore the full weight of our sins. It's hard, I guess, to get this across that we have a holy God and he hates sin. He doesn't tolerate our lying. He doesn't tolerate our hypocrisy. He doesn't tolerate our ignorance of him or avoiding him at all. These sins have to be paid for. These sins have to be made uh, full justice. And instead of you and I paying full justice for this sin, our sin, Jesus did on the cross. He died as a man and he was separated from God who poured out all his wrath on Jesus Christ. We got to appreciate that, I, I think. And uh, you may be here and you haven't got a clue. But you sinned and you know. And you know that God has seen it. As we heard in a testimony this morning, a chieftain asked, does he remember it? Yes. But that sin was laid on Jesus Christ. Your sin and mine. And I don't know how many sins are committed here. If we were to add up, just start down the road and say, how many sins have you committed? How many sins have you committed? And somebody with a calculator just tap them up. And we come up with some unbelievable number that we all have done it. And to realize that Jesus bore each sin in himself, in his own body, on the tree. And the only way he could do that was because of the virgin birth and he becoming a man. So this is a historical step to the cross. Without the manger, we don't have a cross that's been said already this morning. It's utterly impossible for the wise of this world to understand the birth of Christ as an isolated event in history. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are the heirs, who, who us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The goal of Bethlehem was the place of the skull. The birth of Bethlehem was the first step in God's eternal and solemn march to the judgment on the cross. The manger and the cross are inseparable in the redemptive purpose of God. 
Now, a bunch of us will have family over or we'll be going to family, okay? <laughs> Hence, at some point, generally, you'll have the opportunity to say, let's just stop and think what Christmas is all about. Here's your opportunity to share your faith. Here's an opportunity to share with your family and friends, even if it's a business party, why Christmas is here. The Jesus Christ came as a babe, born of a virgin, lived here on earth to display and show what God is really like. And you can look at the life of Christ and see God himself. And that he could die for your sins and pay your penalty on the cross. You can take advantage of that this Christmas. God's act at Bethlehem is very, very important to our eternal salvation, though it's not the end. To preach on the manger only and to avoid the cross is only half the story and not complete. In a few minutes, you'll hear the testimony of those who will be baptized sharing their faith. And we pray that their testimony would be a challenge to you and me of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he can change the life of a child and as an adult. Let us stand for prayer. As our candidates get ready for baptism. Father, we thank you for the birth of Jesus Christ, for his willingness to volunteer and leave heaven's glory to become identified with us. He who was pure spirit to, to take upon the limitations of humanity and live on this earth, not as a rich man, not as a popular man, but as a savior in a world in which he cursed himself. So Father, thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, for the testimony of our people who know you and of our people this morning who will give their testimony before you in the act of baptism, identifying themselves with your followers and identifying yourself with the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.